Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you support this kind of thoughtful discussion that avoids most of the politics shouting that we hear these days, we hope that you have hit the subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcast. And of course, leave us a rating and review. Five stars is always welcomed. It really does help us out. In recent months, there have been some potentially landmark developments on abortion. It could well be that the middle of 2021 will mark an historic turning point on an issue that has been one of the cultural hot buttons in America for decades. On May 17th, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear Jackson Women's Health Organization v. Dobbs. The case deals with Mississippi's law banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. This marks the first time that the court will rule on the constitutionality of a pre-viability abortion ban since Roe v. Wade. The case also features a novel conservative legal argument that the writers of the 14th Amendment, which is foundational to the Roe decision, would have considered persons to include unborn children and that fetuses are persons from the time of conception. The other development is a new Texas law that creates an end run around the federal courts and Supreme Court rulings by creating an avenue for individuals to sue people connected with providing abortions in civil court, making what one analyst called a market for abortion vigilantism. That analyst is one of the sharpest-eyed commentators on law and legal history around, and she's with us today. Dr. Mia Brett has a PhD in history and specializes in American legal history. She's a freelance writer, educator, and by her own description, spends way too much time on Twitter, which, uh, you know, look, maybe any time spent on Twitter is too much. Some people feel that way. Either way, glad to drag you away from that to take us through some of what could turn out to be a real turning point on abortion in this country. Dr. Brett, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and have this conversation. It's great to have you. And you've written a, a few really interesting articles for a website called the Editorial Board. I write for them from time to time as well. Your, your writing also appears on Alternet, Raw Story, um, and just some really insightful pieces about some of the back and forth that's starting to form around this moment on abortion. Let's take a look. Let's start off with a recent article which highlights this conservative legal argument that I, I noted at the top of the show here. The argument is that fetuses are persons, and it's something that really caught your eye. Can you tell us what the argument is? Yeah. Um, so as probably a lot of listeners know, if they don't, um, legal conversations around abortion are they change like every 10 years. And that was true in the 19th century and the 18th century. You know, we have this idea that abortion has always been illegal or, you know, was always considered murder or life always began at conception, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really untrue. Um, and a lot of those arguments for the most part started in the 19th 
century. So what's happening right now is that kind of there have been challenges to Roe v. Wade, of course, since Roe v. Wade was decided. And um, one of the conversations happening right now is taking up the conservative anti-abortion argument that was attempted to be used during Roe oral arguments. Um, and apologies if I'm using too much legal terminology. Hopefully it will become clear um, throughout the conversation. But um, when Roe was first came to the Supreme Court, um, abortion had been illegal in, in kind of fully illegal um, in most states, we'll say since 1900, a little earlier in some, you know. Um, so we're talking about, you know, about 75 years of abortion being illegal. And during that time, abortion was common, but illegal and so unsafe. Um, and so with Roe, what happened was the court kind of finally decided to take this up. And one of the problems was that there had been a lot of very easy dismissals of abortion cases because by the time they got to the Supreme Court, women were no longer pregnant. Um, like the, the, the medical reality took long, took less time, excuse me, than the process to get a case to the Supreme Court. And so they could throw them out by saying, well, there's no person that this affects. But Roe, the court decided to take it up and the lawyers for the Texas abortion law argued that fetuses were people um, under the 14th Amendment. And they weren't necessarily making a complicated historical legal argument, but they were trying to say that the 14th Amendment protected unborn children or, you know, really fetuses. And Justice Blackman just pretty much dismissed that entirely and said, no, 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 that's the 14th Amendment does not include unborn children if it's in its definition of people or persons is the word that's used um, and just brushed right past it. So what's happening right now is in um, Dobbs v. Whole Woman's Health in Jackson, Mississippi, um, the court has taken on a case that re-examines pre-viability abortion restrictions. Um, and pre-viability pretty much means like before 22 to 24 weeks, because before that, a fetus can't live outside the mother on its own. Therefore, it's not viable. Therefore, it's not a person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so Roe pretty much says that any restrictions before viability need to have a really compelling state interest and need to not put an undue burden on the woman. So like, Obviously, what counts as an undue burden has been, you know, very much debated, but having an all out ban for anything before then, you know, like what Mississippi has, which is 15 weeks, um, is, is not considered constitutional under rough. So by the court taking this case up and considering a 15 week ban, it seems to be signaling that it's willing to reconsider Roe. Um, you know, this is allowing a 15 week ban would would pretty much say like we're making new law roe is no longer the precedent that is controlling um abortion laws in this country now it doesn't mean that all of a sudden abortion's illegal everywhere arguably it doesn't even mean abortion's illegal in mississippi depending on how the case goes um but it would be creating a new standard from roe that we now ha all have to 
adapt to? This is a very long answer to your question. No, that's, there's, um, it's obviously a very, it's, it's a complicated topic that as you lay out, goes back to not only arguments that happened in the original Roe right. v. Wade case, but arguments that can be traced back to the 19th century and the debate over the 14th Amendment. Right. So it's, I mean, I, I, I think the context is really important. Just so I'm following, it does seem like viability is a really important concept in here. It's something that came up particularly in the modification to Roe v. Wade that the Supreme Court passed in, was it 1990 in Planned Parenthood yeah. versus Casey? So viability comes in not only to this undue burden standard, but also to this question of, of personhood. Can, can you tease that out for us a little bit? Why is viability so important in, the, in this whole discussion and to understanding where the court may be going on abortion jurisprudence? So this actually gets into your original question about the article that, that you kind of asked me to talk about today. Um, so before abortion really became kind of criminalized, um, the standard for quote unquote life, because because life didn't begin quote unquote begin at conception until the 19th century, like that wasn't an argument. Um, the argument was that it began at quickening. And so quickening is kind of a, a common law term for when you can feel the fetus stir, right? Because before pregnancy tests, before sonograms, like how do you even know you're pregnant, right? Women would know, of course, but they would call it like an interruption of the menses before then, because of course, other things than being pregnant could make a woman miss her period. Um, and, you know, historically there have been things like a woman really has a uterine tumor and isn't pregnant that happened, um, with Queen Mary in England, um, that, that she thought she was pregnant, but it was a uterine tumor. And so, um, kind of this standard was, okay, we feel the baby kick, it's moving. Now we know you're pregnant. Um, now obviously a quickening fetus, which can happen, Around, I mean, it, it happens at different times, but let's say for argument's sake, second trimester, maybe around 15 weeks, 12 to 15. Um, earlier, later, but around there. Um, that's not a viable fetus, right? Like that's not a fetus that can live outside the womb. But it does suggest that there's something living inside there. So this idea about there being a time during pregnancy when life begins, when we start to consider there being a new human forming and that it's not at conception and it's not at six weeks, um, you know, that's, that's a really ancient idea. And so this, this conversation around pregnancy, around abortion, around when life begins, that's an old, old idea. Um, so what happened with both Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which, which came up with slightly different standards, not different standards, excuse me, uh, Casey Moore clarified the standards, um, was, to, was to take this idea of quickening and to say, okay, but we know a quickening fetus can't live outside the womb yet. So when do we start making these, these rules? And the idea was that personhood legally and for a fetus would be when the fetus could be its own person separate from the mother. And that as long as it couldn't, abortion would be allowed and it was not legally a person. Um, and this is used 
in terms of criminal standards too, with assault, right? Like if you do an assault on a pregnant woman and, and she has a miscarriage, like how pregnant she is will very much determine additional charges there. And this seems to me as a non-legal scholar to be sort of a way for the court to sidestep these tangled ethical, moral, and philosophical questions of when does life start and who is or is not a person from a, from a spiritual standpoint. But it's, it's a way to say, look, there is some balancing of rights that has to be achieved. There is some legal standard that must be struck here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tie to something that we can define medically to give us an ability to, to balance things out. So you have a person after this point. Is that about right? Um, I think that there's definitely some truth to what you're saying. Um, I'm not sure if it's ever the court's job to debate these kind of philosophical, spiritual things, right? Like that's that's not, I don't think that that's what we and want. They, and they seem to not in. want to get in there. Which which I think is for the best, right? Right, like, right, I, right. I don't right. Want it. Um, but there's, there's, you know, age old legal principles, right? Like your rights stop at my nose. So you can swing your arms, you have the right to swing your arms, but if you swing your arms in a way that's going to punch someone else, that's not a right. And but I apparently think, it's okay for me to cough in someone else's face well, uh, in other states, but that's a whole okay. other story. Yeah, let's, let's, let's do that <laughs> um, But so, so it's the same with abortion really, that um, when it's a woman's body, right? So that's not another person. It's something that can't live outside of her. It's, it's, it's intimately attached and connected. Um, we're talking about her rights. And that when we get to viability, it's a really clear standard because let's let's say for argument's sake, the woman started to have health problems due to the pregnancy, right? Well, if it's pre-viability, you kind of have to either sacrifice the mother or sacrifice the fetus. But if we get to viability, you can deliver the fetus. Fetus is at 22, 20, well, not really 22, but fetus is post 24 weeks. It might not be, you know, the best uh, stats on survival, but they can. And so we start to get to a point where we don't have to sacrifice the mother's life to bring uh, the fetus to be a person, right? It's now a person itself enough that it can be delivered and hope for the best. And hopefully we can save both lives. Now, you write that in your analysis, this whole argument based around personhood, yes. which also ties to viability, is basically wrong. You, not only did Justice Blackman say, look, prima facie, like, on the face of it, you, you're wrong. I, I find against you. But also it has all kinds of implications that you sort of have a, a conservative reducto ad absurdum approach to. It's like, yeah. you really got to think this through because if you say that according to your standard, fetuses are persons, then well, will you extend the argument to undocumented? So, so what is your argument? Why is this so, argument wrong? Yeah. So to, to be clear, um, I wrote an article that was specifically de debunking, honestly, um, a brief, like an amicus brief, which is kind of a friend of the court brief. So that was submitted by two law professors. And so to be fair, I have not read like every brief associated and the lawyers that are doing so. I... I'm not sure if this is where they're resting their argument. I was debunking a, an a, a, this specific brief written by academics and their argument was that Justice Blackman was wrong and that going back to common law, 
fetuses were considered persons. And that since going back to common law, fetuses were considered persons. And since much of American law is based on common law, that means that the framers of the 14th Amendment, excuse me, um, would have considered fetuses persons. Now, there was a lot of what ifs in it, even in their, right? Like even taking what they're saying at face value, those are a lot of ifs because the 14th Amendment was 1868. So we've had quite a long time of, you know, we've had almost a hundred years of American jurisprudence that yes, of course is influenced by common law, but also has its own, right? Like we had jurisprudence on abortion by this point. We had legislative history in many states on abortion by this point. And so we don't necessarily need to go to common law to figure out what views were on abortion at this time. Um, so, so that's already a lot of what ifs and a lot of like, well, if you assume this and if you assume this, then it means this. Um, but even, you know, so, so that's taking their argument um, and saying, okay, you have a point. But as to your question about where this goes, well, okay, so what they're basically saying is that a fetus is a person from the time of conception. Now, my question is, if you say they're a person from the time of conception, what does that lead to, right? Like, so let's say a woman is, or, or a person is three months pregnant. Does that fetus qualify for welfare? Does it qualify for its own separate insurance? So that, you know, for chip insurance, so that if the, the pregnant person, um, doesn't have their own insurance now they can get insurance through their fetus you know like can like what are we talking about here um food stamps um and then my point with undocumented immigrants was let's say an undocumented immigrant comes into the country and gets arrested but they're pregnant can they say that they can't be deported because their fetus is a person and their fetus was conceived on American soil and therefore you have to wait until they have a baby to be deported like you know it's just where where are we going with this where does it go um and you know to be fair that has been an argument at some times there there's a long history of when women are um kind of sentenced to death waiting until they give birth to sentence them to death so what I just said isn't as ridiculous as one might say, like one might be listening to this and be like, oh, they obviously don't mean that. But we have legal precedent that would support waiting to deport a woman until she gives birth. And I don't think too many conservatives actually want that to happen. Well, I think you, you, you make a really compelling point, which is that in law, and again, I'm not a legal scholar, you are, but you can get to a lot of these absurd positions if you apply some originalist thinking and then you spool things forward. You actually write in your article, there's very little evidence that the writers of the 14th Amendment considered fetuses or abortion or pregnancy, meaning at all, or really even women at all when writing the relevant language. And honestly, even if they did, I think we can all agree that male politicians from 1868 should not be determining the healthcare choices of pregnant people today. Now, I want to extend that argument out a little bit. Um, and what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna pose you a question and then we're gonna take a quick radio break. And so I'm gonna tease this question across the break and ask you to think about it a little bit and come back with a, with a brilliant answer. Because one could really apply the logic to that you just wrote to a heck of a lot of jurisprudence and constitutional law. Why are understandings of science and society and gender roles that were in existence 
250 years ago, the basis for law and interpretations of law today. Think about the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which is the controlling law for a lot of what happens on telephones, but also on the internet. How can we understand what's happening on the internet in a 1996 sense when the internet didn't even exist? And how can we understand viability in a 17th or 16th or 18th century sense? So, you know, that's a complicated question in a lot of ways. Um, for one thing, I think this is the problem with a lot of originalist thinking that we need to consider not the words on the page and not how they've developed, you know, new interpretations, better understandings, but no, 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 we, we can't think of any of that. We have to think of this originalist interpretation of exactly what they meant when they were writing this law. And, and you get people kind of reading like, marginalia to basically try and figure this out. And one of the things that I find hilarious about this is I would argue that the originalist intent of the constitution would not be to do that. I would argue that the originalist intent of the constitution would be to allow for newer understandings, newer interpretations, to let us kind of add in better understandings, better language, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to what the constitution was, to what the amendments were. And the reason I'd argue that is because the constitution allows for amendments. It very explicitly allows for amendments. And we, if you study, you know, early um, US history and you look at kind of the first few presidents and how the Supreme Court really developed, you know, I, like judicial review wasn't something initially. And our entire legal system is based on judicial review. Um, so, you know, and that, that came a little later, that came with Marbury versus Madison. So, you know, I, I think even an original, like they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot with an original intent because a true originalist intent, I think supports not originalism. I think a true originalist intent supports interpretations and et cetera, et cetera. So that's one answer to your question, which is that it shouldn't, and it doesn't have to, and there's no reason for it to. Well, and especially when you're dealing with just taking us full circle to a concept like viability, which yeah. is a scientific and by definition, a 20th century and now a 21st century, indeed an evolving term, an evolving understanding that had no relevance whatsoever at the time that the 14th Amendment was written. It, it, it's, it's something that drives me a little bonkers. But speaking of things that drive me a little bit bonkers, you wrote and this is the, the word bonkers is something that I'm taking from you. You wrote an <laughs> article uh, for the editorial board for Alternate about this law in Texas, which you describe as bonkers and rightfully so. Can you just tell our listeners what is the deal with this law in Texas? I will. But first, I want to give a plug for the word bonkers because um, it's a non-ableist term. So rather than using the word crazy or insane or, you know, these kinds of words that can be kind of st stigmatizing, bonkers is like a great alternative to that. So since you brought it up, I'm going to give a little plug. Um, but yeah, so this law that was passed in Texas it's, it's really convoluted because it it's, was passed in a direct attempt to get around um, a particular kind of legal challenge. So up until this Mississippi 15-week ban, pretty much any ban before, you know, viability, like outright ban, not 
there's plenty of states that have regulations that make it almost impossible to get an abortion at a certain time, but outright bans would hit this constitutional challenge under Roe and under Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and that's it, right? You because they would impose an undue burden. Well, they would create a complete outright ban, which they're not I allowed see. I see. Um, you are not allowed to have a complete outright ban before viability under our current standards. Maybe that will change this Supreme Court season. Um, and so, you know, they would try it, right? They would pass a, a six-week six ban, 15-week ban, heartbeat bills, whatever it is. Um, but it would go through the federal court system, and sure enough, it would get struck down. And so Texas kind of looked at the situation and said, well, well, how do we create a law that maybe we can keep out of a federal challenge or we can keep out of a constitutional challenge. And what they came up with was that it's a ban, basically. It says that, you know, abortions, I, I apologize, I forget. I believe before- um, Six weeks, I believe. It was a six week one, thank you. I believe. Sophia. Well, um, I'm, I'm citing a, a really unimpeachable source, which is you. Which is me, yeah. No, hey, for those articles, I cite them all. They, I double check them. It's just <laughs> sometimes when talking about them later, I I, <laughs> yeah, I understand. So, so if you're citing me, that's that's a pretty good source there. Um, so it's a six week one, and they say that any abortion after six weeks is pretty much illegal. However, usually when something's illegal, it's enforced by police, which are state actors. And so because they're state actors, it can become a constitutional question, right? Like, because that's what the constitution limits. It, it doesn't say I can't be mean to someone across the street, right? It says that a law can't be enforced in a way that's unconstitutional. So what they did was they said, okay, this law is not going to be enforced by police. Police have nothing to do with this law. No one can be arrested. What will happen is if you, an individual, a civilian, has knowledge of an illegal abortion, they can sue the doctor for performing the abortion um, in civil court and anyone else who helped this abortion happen. Um, and if they successfully prove that someone performed an illegal abortion, they will get $10,000. Um, and this is just... So, so the complicated legal thing is that because it's a civil suit and because with a civil suit, theoretically, no state actors are involved, this avoids the constitutional question um, because it's just between individuals. Now, I think that they're being really optimistic that it's going to avoid constitutional questions. Like, um, you know, there's already some, some class actions being brought and things because this is patently ridiculous. Um, and it's, you know, there's a principle with civil law and with tort law, which has to do with personal damages, which is what this would be under, which is that there has to be damage. So if you're a stranger, like you're completely unaffected by a person's health, by their pregnancy, by an abortion, by if this child's born, what are your damages? Why are you getting $10,000? Well, and I, 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 I wanna, that point is so compelling to me but I almost want to put it in the parking lot and go to another point that I, I don't know. I, there's not a hierarchy here. It's equally compelling that you make in the article. I, I just, I just want to, it's sort of the inverse of the point you're making, which is okay. There's a basic legal problem here, which is you have to have standing. You have to, you have to be damaged as an individual. So as an onlooker, I can't just say, 
oh, wow, you know, uh, uh, Jane Doe here has got an abortion. I, I, I am going to go collect a bounty by suing and getting $10,000. That's bad. But there's another case here in which someone could claim to be directly affected and to be a damaged party that I think is even worse. You wrote in your article, even if a woman did not have an illegal abortion, her rapist or abusive spouse could drag her and her doctor into court and force her to disclose medical records and personal information. Travis County attorney uh, Delia Garza outlined a scenario in which a rapist could profit off his crime by suing the doctor who performed an abortion on his victim. So here's a person with some claim of harm, some claim of standing who could benefit from this who is an abuser or a rapist. I don't know that I have anything to add to this, but I, I mean, how, what what was your reaction just writing those sentences? Yeah, it's not going to be what you want to hear. Honestly, I do a lot of work, like studying kind of the way the law is used to abuse women, to be twisted, particularly in family court. And so to me, the first thing I thought of when I looked at this law was, okay, like, how is this going to be used? Um, and that it was going to do that, right? That, that of course, this was going to be used to abuse women and pregnant people who, who had miscarriages or had abortions. Um, because that's where my mind goes, because I've studied this a lot. So unfortunately to me, that was just an obvious thing that was going to come up. And as I was researching for the piece, I found a lawyer um, who was directly involved in fighting the law talking about it. Um, and I think that's, but that's really important too, that this is going to harm people who have not had abortions, but only had miscarriages. We already sometimes punish women who've had miscarriages by either charging them with abortion or charging them with somehow causing the miscarriage. So for example, there's states that have um, charged women who maybe did drugs while they were pregnant or drank, or I don't know, maybe did too much exercise, right? Like to be fair, that last one hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's you could see how that would go. Um, and so I think what you're going to see if this law is allowed to go into effect is that someone can have a miscarriage the police could not know about it, not be involved in it, not do anything. And they go from being pregnant to no longer being pregnant and their abuser could make them come into court and prove that it was a miscarriage and not an abortion. Um, and so they're not gonna win or hopefully they won't win, but a lot of abusers don't care. It's, it's using the legal system to be abusive. Um, and so a lot of people have said, you know, in response to this, oh, well, they're not going to win. How are they going to have evidence? But that's not the only issue. Dragging someone into court is embarrassing. It can be traumatizing if they've had a miscarriage. It's a way for their abuser to stay in their lives, to keep abusing. Plus there's court fees. It's expensive. I mean, there's so many things that can be done, even if the person doesn't win. So yeah, maybe the court fees um, and needing proof is going to be a deterrent for kind of random strangers who are just anti-abortion and want to to you know enforce the law yeah maybe the cost of all of this and the then not likely that they're going to win is going to be a deterrent but that is not the only group we need to be concerned about here um, absolutely and i mean it, it the the prospect of the ability there's a term in law of frivolous lawsuits and i'm going to use that term here not to suggest 
that someone getting sued over a matter like this is frivolous, but no. just as, as a term of art. But I don't understand how you can avoid having reams of frivolous lawsuits, lawsuits with, with no basis, not to mention the other specter that you just raised here, which is there is going to be a subset, if this law goes into effect, of women who are sued, who have the resources to have an attorney, to defend themselves, to know enough about the legal system to show up for court dates. There's also going to be a subset to whom that does not apply. And the impact of this on them with all the implications, socioeconomic, yeah. racial, and, and what have you, is clearly there. So it's a disaster from that standpoint. But I, I promised that we would go back to the first point you were making that I, I rudely shoved into the parking lot. And I want to rescue it from the parking lot right now because it's also deeply profound. Again, I can't choose which is worse here. But to me, I want to go back to the word bounty, which is a word that, that you introduced in your article. I, as longtime listeners to Beyond Politics will know, I am a little bit of a judicial system purist. I believe that law and justice need to be administered through a judicial system. It's one third of our constitution. The whole idea that you have courts that administer justice and not mobs of vigilantes is foundational to our country. I cannot think of a single historical instance of mob justice being justice at all. And again, go ahead and introduce the well-known racial and socioeconomic implications of mob justice. Is this law essentially turning every citizen of the state of Texas into a, an enforcer of mob justice, whether they're, they're seeing something that's real or not? So it's interesting. I actually started my academic career. My undergraduate thesis was on um, vigilantism and mob justice. So I have a lot to say on that subject. Um, while I think the idea of bounty hunters and bounty should be introduced here, I actually don't think this is an example of mob justice, not, not defending it at all, obviously, but it does need to go through a court. It does need to have a judge involved. This is not going to be people showing up to, or it shouldn't be, uh, people showing up to people's houses, demanding things, doing things. It is court filings. It is lawyers. It is judges throwing it out. Now it's a law that's patently ridiculous, but it is still going through the legal system. Um, and there is still a modicum of protection in that for the people who are being sued. Um, a lot of judges will just throw these out. I mean, you know, it's because you do need to have some evidence even to bring the case. Um, there's discovery and you get more after the case is brought, but, but you need something. And so just kind of a vague suspicion that someone had an abortion isn't it. Um, so, so I don't think we can quite apply mob justice to this though. Yes, it's, but the bounty issue, um, is more something because that's basically what they're saying. They're basically deputizing individual citizens to go out and find proof of abortions. And if they successfully do, they will be given $10,000. It's not the language that's used. It's very much framed within civil litigation, not bounty hunters. The effect is going to be bounty hunters. Now, one positive is that bounty hunters are given um, some latitude to do kind of bizarre things in order to bring people in. Now, under, as far as I'm aware, there's no such latitude as part of this Texas law. Um, you know, they're not like if they 
kind of push through into an abortion clinic and take confidential files, that's not going to be admitted in court because they've broken laws. There's doctor patient confidentiality. Like that's just not, you know, not without a warrant, not without discovery and kind of people needing to prove things. So, so there is that aspect that I, I don't think they're going to have that kind of protection. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much what's happening. And it's all just to get around being in federal court though. Probably I, I think that there will be some, legal arguments about judges being state actors and, and having to be involved in this and different things like that. There's certainly legal arguments to make here um, that will get it into federal court. And again, that there's no standing. So the law already violates legal principles, but yeah. Is the real agenda here not so much to go after women, but to go after providers and not necessarily to exact all of these iterations of $10,000 findings against them, but to make it impossible for them to practice because one can only imagine the implications for medical insurance for providers, the implications for, I mean, what, how, what are the attorney's fees for keeping your lawyer on retainer for the scads of claims that are going to be lobbed against you? It would be, it seems to be both from a red tape and a financial perspective, if this law goes through, almost possible to be a provider of any kind in Texas. And I want to point out that it's not just the doctors and any other licensed medical provider. You point out that the law includes people who aided in illegal abortion in being subject to a suit. So a spiritual leader, a therapist, a friend, a cab driver, if they drive someone to a facility, all of those links in a chain, if they touch this nexus of being part of an abortion, could potentially be liable. So it seems to create this legal cloud hanging over this, the, 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 entire, the entire enterprise of seeking this form of medical care and thereby make it logistically impossible. Yeah, so I, I think it's definitely aimed at providers because if someone needs an abortion, they're going to find a way to get it, you know, like, or hopefully that's not true. Actually, a lot, a lot of people are forced to give birth, but illegal abortions are always going to happen, period, end of story. That's what it is. Um, but providers and reputable providers can't be involved in this. Um, and yeah, and that's the same thing with trap laws, which are targeted, um, restricted abortion just forgot the last word, I apologize. Um, but they, they are to make it that um, for abortion providers to be legal, the halls need to be a certain width and the doctors need to have admitting privileges at a certain number of hospitals and et cetera, et cetera, right? That doesn't target people seeking abortions, that targets the providers to make it pretty much impossible for them to legally comply with the law. So yes, that is something that this is gonna do. So if the law goes into effect and if it seems like it's going to be upheld, doctors are not even going to attempt to provide abortions out of fear of what this is going to do. And so you don't need the evidence, right? You don't need to be able to prove it. You don't need standing. You don't need any of this. You just need a law that's scary enough to stop doctors from even attempting it. Um, and what you pointed out with kind of the cloud, the nexus of who could be brought into court, I actually think that that was a real mistake in the law because it sometimes when it overreached, it's going to bring in more anger. And so what you have is spiritual leaders, right? You have like Christian 
pastors opposing this abortion law because it violates kind of the sanctity of their conversations with their parishioners. And to me, that's just, you know, a strategic misfire. Like you don't want, you know, you don't want all these Christian spiritual leaders coming out against an abortion law. Um, and so actually they, they really misfired in trying to, I mean, the whole law is ridiculous, but, um, it, it just gave so much, um, fire to people wanting to challenge it by making it that broad. Well, it does seem like a theme that connects both of these articles and, and both of these discussions, the 14th amendment discussion and this Texas law discussion is the potential for, look, if you are someone who just happens to be anti-abortion, um, which is a position that I can totally respect. You may hold that position and still feel like both of these legal approaches are misguided. It seems, especially in the case of the Texas law, is this, is this something where a segment of anti-abortion activism has potentially gone too far in terms of what they could unleash, even for the bulk of anti-abortion advocates? I wish, but I don't think so. And honestly, you know, you say, okay, being anti-abortion is a position I can respect. I can't. And I know a lot of people who can't for precisely this reason. There is not, well, many reasons. Personally being anti-abortion, feel however you want, do whatever you want, don't get an abortion, teach your kids that abortions aren't something they should want to get. Sure. But once we get into legislating it and criminalizing it, you get into a place that is not logical. You get into a place that is anti-science. It's almost impossible to have that, to have the position that abortion should be made illegal and stay within a framework of logic, ethics, you know, not restricting other people's freedoms. And so that's why I don't think you're going to see too much pushback from these laws from anti-abortion activists who I guess you would hope were more sane. Final question for you. It's not to put you in a difficult position because most predictions are sure to go wrong. But I think what most listeners will want to know is what are the chances of either of these legal avenues resulting in a landmark change in the way abortion is dealt with legally in this country? Yeah. I mean, my guess is the Texas vigilantism won't go very far, but the Supreme Court took this case for a reason, and they're not going to take it just to reaffirm our current um, laws. And we have a 6-3 conservative majority. So my prediction is that that case is very likely to really fundamentally change abortion law in this country. But what I would say is we have a number of states who in the past few years have passed abortion laws to protect abortion if Roe should go south. And keep hammering that home. If you live in a state that's just been dragging its heels on passing abortion legislation to protect it, this is the time to really push that and call your legislators legislators to fix that. That's interesting. And I, I, I suppose I take some... I don't know that one is better than the other, but I just find the the outrage and, and how insipid the Texas law that offends that offends my like sensibilities of how government should operate and regulate and the way the legal system should operate. Although I see what you're saying, that the consequences of the Supreme Court case 
could be far greater, far more impactful. Dr. Mia Brett uh, is a legal historian and analyst and a freelance writer and a uh, a Twitter presence. Where can people find you on Twitter? Queen Mab 87. Queen Mab 87 and a writer for Alternate, Raw Story and the editorial board. Thank you so much for walking us through these really complicated and really important topics.